0: randy let's let people in behind the scenes of the podcast what's the weirdest thing that's happened while we've recorded an episode
1: Ooh, let's see lily um besides the time my internet failed completely or this week when squadcast decided to randomly and permanently mute our guests i think it's actually when so-called smart speakers have randomly interrupted our guests
0: It was very annoying, very inconvenient, because I was really enjoying the conversation. Um, But anyway, it's not even Halloween yet, so it's not time for the gremlins to come out and fiddle with our (laughs) stuff. We know it's not really actually gremlins, just weird interactions with our devices. But anyway, that's exactly why we asked Cheryl Platts to join us this week, to explain how to design beyond devices.
1: And that's exactly what her book is called. Designed beyond devices, creating multimodal cross device experiences. Sounds smart. And you know, despite Squadcast's best efforts, we had a great chat. So let's not tempt fate any further, let's get straight into it.
0: The product experience is brought to you by Mind the
1: Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love.
0: Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos.
1: Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more.
0: Mind product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and
1: there's probably one near you. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: So excited to see you too.
1: <laughs> so for anyone who hasn't read your book or seen you do talks or watched you do improv or any of that, can you just give a, a, a quick intro for us for to tell everyone who's listening? Uh what is it you're doing these days and how did you get into this whole world of product related stuff
2: Sure. So hi, everybody. Uh, Again, I'm Cheryl Platts. And uh, for a while, I was calling myself the 20-sided woman because I'm a nerd. And if you've ever played Dungeons and Dragons, that 20-sided die, uh, my husband liked to call me that because I I have a lot of different things I like to do, as Randy sort of alluded to. So I've been uh, working on digital product for my entire career, uh, but I also have a number of avocations. And uh, those include acting and you know, those include uh, creative pursuits like... More artistic things and that, you know, that multifaceted set of interests is what got me into user experience design in the first place. I wanted something that combined technology and creativity. And uh, that's also what drew me into uh, my first of the what I call my three chapters in my career, uh, video games, enterprise, and consumer software and hardware products. And it's that first chapter, the video game chapter, where I first got exposed to uh, multimodal interface design, which is when you're working with multiple inputs and outputs of uh, modes of interaction with the device. And that has influenced my entire career. And that is pretty much what's brought us here today to talk, uh, because in December 2020, I published my first book, Design Beyond Devices, Creating Multimodal Cross-Device Experiences. So I went from creating, uh, being the lead producer on a game for the Nintendo DS, which was kind of... uh, groundbreaking and a couple of a couple of ways then we had voice had touch had a couple couple of different interesting interaction modalities back in 2000 eight uh and you know fast forward I was working on Windows Automotive and doing voice natural language in the car and touch and in, in an interesting context. Then I worked on Cortana and Alexa and uh but and you know fast forward to uh today and all the talks I've uh been giving and the, the content of my book. But I'm also very passionate about enterprise experiences and working with AI and working at scale. And so my book is about kind of marrying all of these things because whether you're working on cutting edge, like home smart speaker technology, or whether you're working on a website that has to span from a phone to a a traditional desktop website, uh, you are adapting in the moment. You may be crossing interaction modalities. You're definitely crossing device boundaries. And there are a lot of interesting design challenges along the way. And as Randy
1: alluded to, I also do
2: some improv, which influences a lot of my
1: work. (laughs) <laughs> okay, there is a ton there. And a lot of us, you know, we're still working in organizations where hopefully we've convinced people to at least be thinking mobile first, but you alluded to a whole bunch of other things. Is that still where we should be going? Should we be uh, trying to influence our organizations to be mobile first? Or is it multimodal first? Or is it, what, what's the right mindset now?
2: It's a really great question and not to like, it's going to sound a little rote coming from a designer, but it really does need to be customer first. Or as I kind of uh, bring home the point of my book, context first. What does your specific customer need? If your customer is married to their phone and their phone is with them all the time, then yeah, mobile first probably still makes sense. But a lot of our customers are Stuck at home, for example, now. And so their phone might be sitting on a desk and they're moving back and forth between rooms and there's a smart speaker and there's a mobile, uh, there's, you know, there's a tablet computer. And so maybe mobile first doesn't make as much sense anymore. Or maybe they've gotten more used to uh, just barking out commands to, uh, you know, in in their safe home environment where an open workspace, it was awkward to use voice commands. So context matters. Context has changed significantly in the last year and a half. Uh, A lot of the assumptions we had about the way people worked are no longer and, and lived are no longer valid, and so uh, you know, like the the second chapter of my book is basically all about like how do we extend the way we talk to our customers to get at the real truth of the new context, so we can answer that question, like is is it really mobile first for your customers? Is it is it watch first? Is it a augmented reality first? Is it is it voice first? Um, and the other point I make a lot in my book is that really putting any one modality first may be missing the point because anytime we we focus on one type of interaction, we may be leaving people behind. Because uh, if, if somebody's, it, at least the mobile, when we say mobile first, at least there's usually touch and voice and there's some multiple things. But when, we, you know, a lot of people say voice first, I'm like, that's great, but we're leaving people with, uh, you know, acoustic disabilities potentially behind uh just as we'd left people who, uh with visual disabilities behind at the beginning of the computing revolution right so uh what i tell people is uh, you know we may be leaving people behind if we focus too much you know if we say voice first uh we may be leaving people behind who can't process acoustic stimuli. Just like in the beginning of the uh, computing revolution, we might've been leaving people behind who couldn't process visual stimuli. And so the more flexible we can be, the better for everybody.
0: And you mentioned um, like in the last year and a half, our assumptions around the way that people live and work uh, have all kind of been shaken about and turned upside down. Um, in terms of like how people think about a lot of the different devices or touch points or interactions that are available to us now in the home is it it, there was a a, definitely a period of it being quite gimmicky and you know not not kind of actually useful or practical but just interesting and innovative Um, so do you think we're now getting out of that phase you know it took mobile phones, probably a, a good decade to really embed in the the norm of um, people's lives. So uh, do you see that happening a lot faster with things like voice and, and in your other potential interactions?
2: I wouldn't say faster, but I think we're at a really important inflection point right now and it, I, what's been really interesting to me is there's been this cliff for voice and it's the productivity cliff uh we've it, as you mentioned like there's been there's been some gimmicky stuff and then there's been some stuff that's genuinely useful but more in the leisure and and the home space you know timers and uh timers and alarms and reminders super useful but more in the home space but when we talk about like when i was working on Cortana in 2014 we were working on like emails and calendaring and scheduling and that's never taken hold in voice. Um, And I think there's a lot of factors for that. A lot of that was the open workspace and the fact that it's really awkward to talk to a computer when there's 80 people around you. I think we're at this really interesting point now. Now people are working from home. Maybe it is now actually reasonable to like actually bark out and say, hey, um, you know, okay, Google or whatever, hey, uh, what's my next meeting? What uh, can you put this on my calendar? But we've got this gap where people basically uh, iced all that work because nobody was nobody was using it. So there's big opportunity, but I don't I haven't seen the uh, the industry catch back up again to where Mm. we were thinking, maybe, you know, seven years ago.
1: So if I need to start considering this and trying to figure out what my modals are, modals, modes, whatever, uh, wh- what they are, uh, and trying to just explore beyond where I am today. Uh, you've talked about dimensions, and I know you've got a two by two grid. So it's a totally leading question. So we love, to- we're product people, we love two by twos. <laughs> but can you give us an idea of how should we think about this? How do we approach this and, and map it out?
2: Great question. And because it's a daunting thing, it's a daunting space. And when you think about all the different products that use multiple input modalities and output modalities, uh, there's a huge difference between uh, your smart speaker and the Echo Show or the Google Home Hub, which has a screen and voice, and the TV experience you have, maybe your Comcast X1 or whatever that you can talk to with your remote. Those are three very different interaction models. The amount of voice interaction that you have, the amount that it gives you back, the amount of touch, uh, all the amount of visuals, all very different. Like, where do you as a product person decide to place yourself? And uh, my experience, especially as we were trying to, like, birth some of this space at Amazon uh, back in the day, uh, was that there were two dimensions of the customer's context and scenarios that determined what interaction model you really needed. And those two dimensions were, number one, um, how rich is the information that needs to be communicated on average. Uh, So for example, you might have low information density. You might have things like, my customer really only needs uh, small chunks of information, like the current temperature, or uh, the the, uh, result of a current timer, or a sports score, or something like that. Little snippets. Versus something that's much higher information density, like they're navigating an entire set of movie times, or they're listening to an audio book, uh, or something along the. Or they're listening to ten day forecasts on average. Those those things, uh, you know, the more information density we get, the less a, an interaction modality like uh, audio makes sense because the brain has a harder time processing a lot of information at once. From on the audio channel. And so then we start to think about like what other interaction forms will help people work with more information better. Visual is usually better in that sense. Um, So that's one of the things it's like asking yourself, like how heavy is the information we're working with on in this scenario or in this product in general? Uh, And you can do it either way, scenario or product. And then the other dimension is your customer's spatial relationship with the device on which the experience is taking place. And by that, I mean, if, are they typically close to the device within arm's reach? So basically three feet or less. Or are they able to, are they moving around? Can they be three to 10 feet away from the device? Because if they are three to 10 feet away from the device, Typically, you can no longer assume that they are looking at the device. Uh, In in many cases, Uh, there are a few exceptions, but and that starts to change what you uh, kind of the things you can build into your assumptions on the product. Like if I'm not, first of all, if you're not near the product, you can't touch the product. So the types of interactions you have available to you are totally different. Then you really need to lean on voice unless you have a really good, strong remote control or you're using the mobile phone as a secondary model or something like that. Uh, And secondarily, if they're not near it, there's a very likely, you know, they may turn around and then you can't assume you have visual contact either. And so knowing the customer's physical relationship, now they might get close to the device, but knowing the extent of their range and their relationship with the device is important. Um, once you know those two things and you can get at that through customer research or by knowing exactly what device you're targeting or a bit of both, then uh I've got a chart in my book where I sort of I plot uh and I plot one of these dimensions on the horizontal axis, one of them on the vertical axis, and then we get four quadrants, and I call this the spectrum of multimodality. Um and up in the upper right-hand quadrant, we've got Uh, adaptive experiences, which allow people to basically choose the way they want to interact with the device in the moment, a lot like your Echo Show or your Google Home Hub. Like, if I'm near it, I can touch it. If I'm far away, I can speak to it. But in other quadrants, um, you know, if, uh, if your relationship with the device is far away and it's low information density, speaking to the device, an intangible experience makes a lot of sense. But if you're close to the device and you have really rich information, then an anchored rich experience with a lot of information like a fire TV uh, or you know, other TV experience or your desktop experience makes a lot of sense. And if the device is very close to you, uh, like a like Google Glass, <laughs> I guess RIP or, <laughs> or augmented reality or your watch, then a direct experience where it's very constrained and you're inferring a lot of information from, from sensors so that there's not a lot of uh, manipulation required from the customer uh, that's the kind of interaction model you're probably going to go with
0: so I suppose one of like just thinking about the relationship as well that you have with different devices now you, you kind of mentioned about um being close to a device but in the instance of a watch or even like a car you are close to that device but then you are also your attention is generally elsewhere like you're not looking at it um like how do you get to the point where you're making a decision around okay this is the the service or the product or the problem that i'm trying to solve and you know ultimately they probably have a website already um but h- like how do you then begin to explore all of these different ways in which you can interact with your customer or your user um in all of these different scenarios because it feels like such a huge like wealth of opportunity but um you know like yeah I just how do you how do you even start where do you start
2: (laughs) it's a great question And, and it is it can be really daunting when you think about these things one of my most popular medium posts was talking about how um you know the the voice recognition scenarios that took off on Alexa were actually not new scenarios they were things that were already supported on mobile but they were scenarios that uh weren't convenient on mobile. They were things that when you looked at them in context, they were awkward. I have a $1,000 phone, and yes, I can set timers on it, but if my hand is covered in butter, I don't want to touch the $1,000 phone. And so uh, that's why I, I harp on context so much. Like when you when you observe your customers, when you listen to them, it may well be that the things they already have services for are still not meeting their needs in the right way. And uh, th- we have these devices that are capable of so much but are not being used to their fullest capacity. Um, and whether or not somebody's living with a disability, uh, you know, the Microsoft uh, Inclusive Design Toolkit has a really useful sort of spectrum, both uh, permanent and situational disability. And, you know, it, like they they sort of talk about like, well, if I'm holding a child, I'm in a situational disability where I don't have the use of my arms. There's a lot of those things that crop up in real life. And so that's often kind of a keystone, like a keystone moment that can help you figure out where a multimodal interaction might make a lot of sense on a, a scenario that your customer already has. Uh, has something for. But I'm really glad you brought up attention because attention is a really big part of this too. Uh, And uh, one of the chapters in my book, I talk about something called an activity model, Because essentially, I don't know uh, if any listeners have had this experience where, like, you try to open an app and the app's like, I've got to load. So you're going to have to wait. So you go try to do something else. You pick, you open up an email, you start typing. And then after a few seconds, the app you tried to open is like, I'm ready now and interrupts you in the middle of a sentence, like, shifts your focus over, which is rude. The computer knows you're in the middle of a sentence, like you're typing. The computer has all of this information available, and yet it still bonks you back from the email to the original app. It should know better, but we've never taught our devices what rude means, or like what what uh, what a human activity means, in which in which the context an interruption would be rude. And so uh, that I talk about this this concept of activity modeling, where we say like for your customer in the situation you're trying to support with the product, what are the patterns of activity in which uh, an interruption would be dangerous or rude or acceptable? And, uh, you know, and then you take the different scenarios you're trying to support, you kind of matrix them on top of the activities and you come up with patterns. So you're like, this, in this situation when my customer's running, I'm not going to distract them too much because I don't want to trip them. I'm going to use stuff that's very subtle or I'm only going to use audio. I'm not going to try to get them to look at the watch. Uh, but if I know they're standing because we're not moving, then I will use visual stimuli, for example.
1: I love this. It's, it's like a mix of Tron and Inside Out. Uh, and I've, you know, <laughs> I've I've often considered my devices to be annoying, but I'm not sure I ever considered them to be intentionally rude before, and that's great. <laughs> um, but you were talking about activity modeling, uh, and can we just go a little bit deeper on that? Because we've done lots of stuff in the past about story mapping and other kinds of journey dis- uh, mapping types of things, but what is exactly is activity modeling?
2: So activity modeling is you you take a look at the patterns of behavior for your customer uh, in the space that your product touches. And, you know, for a product like Alexa, this is very broad because it's basically like all human behavior in the home. Uh, But, you know, in a workplace, it might be much more constrained to like the types of tasks a person is conducting at their desk, for example. And you take a look at those and uh, you, you deconstruct that behavior based on a couple of different uh, guiding criteria. For me, it was things like, um, is this activity interruptible safely? Uh, can I resume it later? uh, and, uh, what is the cost of resuming it later? Like, is it, you know, if I'm in the flow and I'm writing something and I get interrupted, it's going to take me extra time to get back in that flow. Um, so, so if I'm, if I'm interrupted while writing a word doc, it's resumable, but at a cost. Whereas if I'm on a phone call and I get interrupted, I have potentially lost that context forever. Uh, the, especially if it's like a conference call when other people are continuing without me. So those are fundamentally two different types of activity patterns. One of them, my contacts uh, will be lost forever when I get interrupted, and the other one, I can my contacts can get saved, but it's at a cost to me as a person. And then there are other activities where uh, or situations where maybe I, you know, it's very easy for me to pick up later. Maybe I'm just filling out a form and it's all going to be saved there's no cost later, everything's perfect. And so then we have three activity patterns. And once it and there's no one right activity model because it does depend on context, but I do propose, I do share kind of what I had worked on on Alexa notifications as sort of like a case study is like a baseline you can use. And so we had uh, activity patterns like, uh, you know, the customer is, uh, you know, one, one type of activity was a uh, short running task. So the customer is engaged with the product doing something like getting a weather report, uh, or getting the answer to a question. So those activities can be interrupted, but, uh, it, you know, the cost of resuming them is so small that we don't even bother like saving your place. We're just like, Hey, you know what, if you need to do this again, you can just ask, uh, Versus a long-running task uh, where it was something like listening to music, we can uh, those those you could pause or attenuate, like make the volume go down. So we you know the type of, inf- of behavior when we interrupted you was fundamentally different. You didn't have to lose the context of what you were doing when we interrupted you. And then we had live activities which were things like phone calls uh, or like if you were listening to like the like watching TV or something. Those you you would lose the context if we interrupted you. And so whereas we might if you had an incoming call and we had the caller ID information, we would decide whether or not to announce the caller ID information based on what you were doing. So if you were listening to uh, like the weather report, we might just interrupt it and say like, okay, uh, Cheryl Platts is calling because it's a time sensitive thing and you can get the weather in five seconds. We don't want you to miss this call. If you're listening to music, we'll turn the volume down a little bit and say like, okay, Cheryl Platts is calling. And if you're on a phone call already, we would just play the dial tone or like we play the call, like the incoming call tone, but we wouldn't announce it because you're already in a situation where you would lose context if we interrupt you in that way. Um, And then we'd provide you other ways to get that information if you needed it, like a banner um, or like a notification on your phone. And so we're making, we use that activity model to make informed choices about how we interrupt you in the moment.
0: Um, So if I want to dive into this, if I think there's opportunities to um, to go more mo- multi mo- I can't say it, <laughs> to go more multimodal. modal um, what's the, wh- who do I need on my team? Like, and what's the, the best place to get started? Like, if I have a UX person who's, um, you know, mainly sort of got experience in uh, more like website UX, is that sufficient? Um, I mean, I guess it will depend on the person, but... Um, how do we, how do we sort of like start to dabble in, uh, multimodal products?
2: So if you have a designer who is familiar with the, uh, interaction design side of, of UX, sometimes you have visual focused designers, and this may be a little bit more stretch for them. But if someone is an interaction designer, this is a set of skills or thinking that layers on top of their existing skill set. And we all start somewhere, right? I, I did wasn't a multimodal designer at first, we all start somewhere. And I find that it they'll also benefit from very strong partnership with their product managers, their program managers, because there is a lot of technical constraint, there's a lot of complexity here. So you can go on this journey together. You can learn about your customers. There are some materials on my website that can help you get started with the shared understanding workshop where you kind of dump all your current understanding of your customer on the table and then start working towards what gaps are still exist in your understanding of your customer that you'll need to fill in order to plot your experience on the spectrum of modali- multimodality and make informed decisions about maybe your activity model and what scenarios you need to support.
0: And you have a really nice method of understanding your customers, which um, I hadn't come across before, but comes from your improv, I believe, <laughs> called yes. Crow. Yes. Um, t- tell us um, about how that works. And so I, I can't take
2: credit for the acronym itself, but uh, the, I, the Crow acronym is a tool we use at my improv theater that I've worked with for the past 13 years, I think, Unexpected Productions in the Pike Place Market in Seattle, which a fun fact is the reason the gum wall exists, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, That's a fun rabbit hole we won't talk about here. But When you are a professional improv performer, there is a high bar for your narrative because people have paid to see you perform and they expect you to tell interesting stories. And so we use this acronym to represent a reminder of what elements the human brain basically needs to find a story kind of compelling enough that it can fill in the blanks and so I took that as an improviser slash uh, sort of user researcher and said like that kind of also tells us a map of like what kind of represents a holistic scenario, like a holistic person, a holistic uh, environment. And so CROW stands for character, relationship, objective, and where. And so I've broken that down for folks, both in a Medium post in my book and in some materials on my website, uh, so that you can use the, these four letters to kind of deconstruct your understanding of the customer and extend your existing customer outreach or your existing user uh, uh user experience, research practice to get the additional context you'll need to make informed multimodality choices. Uh, So, you know, really getting into the character part and understanding like it's not just like asking hey like who are you and how old are you but like the difference between like what is fundamental to them like what marginalized groups are maybe they are a member of that are going to influence uh their ability to interact with some of these modalities uh and what perceptions are they going to bring that's going to influence their ability to like what gestures they're going to think are appropriate for example uh to the relationship part uh i talk about the importance of Asking about human to human relationships, we talk a lot about human to computer and human to company, but do we talk about the relationship of your customer to the other cu- the people in their home? If they're sharing a phone, if they're sharing the computer, that has an impact on, uh, you know, if you're using the Alexa device and you're switching profiles, that that adds a whole layer of complexity. If your kids using your phone that and switching profile, that adds a whole layer of complexity. If you're trying to do a banking app on on Alexa and they have someone in their home they don't trust, that's a whole bunch of a deal breaker. And so asking questions and broadening the way you ask questions is really important. And then uh, the objective part is a really good reminder for us all to make sure that we're grounding our uh, user stories in real human needs and not like ty- like technical needs. You know, I don't browse a list of virtual machines for fun. I browse it because I want to find the broken virtual machine and reboot it. For example, but and then uh, the where really important for multimodality because it's usually the environment that's driving a lot of the the changes customers make to you know whether they're interacting with a phone or a smart speaker or, or a desktop. It's like. Where is the customer? What devices are in arm's reach? What distractions are there? Uh, Understanding that where more and not taking it for granted that like everyone's home office is the same or everyone's kitchen is the same uh, will help you make the case to your stakeholders that it's worth investing in this extra technology. Because like when I worked on the Echo Look at Amazon, they were like, well, why don't we just use an app? Uh, we, we, you know, just use a phone app for this. But when we talked to our customers and we watched our customers, number one, their phones weren't with them when they were making clothing decisions. And number two, when they used both the voice and the uh, app, they were like, I'm not going to buy this without voice. Using the app is awkward. Uh, they, they wanted it hands free because they're getting dressed. They think that's, that's a very, very hands on experience. Context matters, the wear matters, the environment matters.
1: So Cheryl, thank you so much. We've really enjoyed all this. We're running out of time, now, so let's try and get one more question in. Uh, I'm just curious for people who are just getting started in working with uh, a multimodal mindset and, and taking their uh, their products into a different space. What's the mistake you see people making most often? You know, what's the thing that we should all watch out for?
2: Well, I think problems in or sort of solutions in search of problems. Uh, get, falling in love with the particular uh, input modality and coming up with something really complicated without it being grounded in a customer need is the biggest uh, mistake I see. Uh, that's why I lead in my book with customer context first. If I, I know it's really exciting to try to like boil the ocean and put all the bells and whistles in, but at the end of the day, like simple solutions are often the best Uh, and it can be, and a lot of times it's like a simple voice command that infers a lot of what you need from sensors and previous settings is a lot more valuable than a really well-executed multi-turn voice interaction uh, that also supports gesture. So it's uh, I I think that's probably the biggest mistake I see is assuming that the end product has to be complicated uh, or assuming that, what people want is something uh, showy and and, uh, new.
1: Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed this. Uh, You've got a whole bunch of resources on your website. We're going to link to them all in the show notes and the article. So if you want to follow up on uh, Cheryl's book, see her talks, uh, download any of the worksheets, please go there.
0: So do you think devices are really out to get us? Oh, of
1: course not. Not the devices. You know, just their designers.
0: (laughs) And on that note, see you next week. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and...
1: Me, Randy Silver.
0: Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor.
1: Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band PAU, that's P-A-U, thanks to Arne Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide.
0: If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank.
1: Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips.